Lingua Britannica is a podcast that uses ethnographic interviews to study language use in the extreme metal community. We are studying a music scene known for its love of themes and topics generally considered offensive, and it is likely that some episodes will touch on topics or opinions some listeners may find tasteless or ethically problematic. Ethnographic researchers aim to adopt the interviewee's point of view so that we can draw out and study the attitudes, beliefs, and practices that are important to them. We want to make it clear that in presenting these conversations here, we do not endorse any of their content. Our aim is to explore the thought processes behind language use in this long-running international and yet understudied scene. everyone and welcome back to Lingua Britannica. In this episode we'll be hosting another discussion about metal studies with an academic who has completed a lot of important research in this area. Uh, so the academic we'll be speaking to today is Dr Jeremy Wallach uh, who is currently working as a professor in the Department of Popular Culture at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Uh, Jeremy is an anthropologist specializing in research on music and technology, globalization, cultural theory and semiotics. Of particular relevance to this podcast is Jeremy's work on Southeast Asian popular musics which includes research conducted on the metal scenes of Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore, uh, which is detailed in the book he has co-edited called uh, Metal Rules the Globe, uh, which was released almost exactly 10 years ago now, mm-hmm. uh, and includes a collection of scholarly essays on metal scenes in 15 countries. So thanks for being with us today, Jeremy. My pleasure. It's good to be here. So we're definitely looking forward to discussing the work on metal featured in the collection, as well as your experiences with metal more broadly. So just to start, can you tell us a bit about how you got into metal just first off? Well, uh, the the short answer is uh, I'm 50 and a lot of people my age uh, with my background, uh, white suburban um, middle class, uh, listened to that music growing up. That isn't why I became a metal scholar, however. I became a metal scholar because I did research in Indonesia. And uh, while I heard um, hints of this before I went, when I um, actually got to the country, I found out that Indonesia uh, had one of the biggest metal scenes in the world. And no one really knew about this. No one was talking about it outside of the country. Uh, And I realized just how massive the global dimensions of this subculture were and it went far beyond the sort of western world uh, and that even even folks in australia for example weren't really aware of the dimensions of of metal and punk culture in southeast asia until about 20 years later right and then sort of the dam burst uh uh and you have the situation you have now, which is well-documented in uh, Ryan Thomas's um, film, uh, The Other Option, about um, mostly Australian grindcore and punk and, and metal bands touring in Southeast Asia, touring the very scenes that I wrote about. Uh, but they were already well-established by the 1990s. At that point, though, very few folks from outside the region knew about them. Uh, so that's when I became active as a scholar of heavy metal when I wanted to tell the world about what these guys were doing. 
So did you initially, like when you were doing your PhD, et cetera, set out to do metal or is this something you kind of stumbled on as you were researching other topics? Well, I sort of both. It was an interest of mine. Uh, I went to Indonesia because it was a place that a lot of ethnomusicologists were interested in uh, working in, although primarily um, people were writing about the, the traditional music there, uh, the traditional music specifically of central Java and Bali. However, people were branching out and writing, starting to write a little bit about the popular music there as well. And I went to study the popular music primarily and study that music ethnographically. That really had not been done. A full length anthropological study of popular music hadn't really been attempted at the time. And in doing this research, I tried to cover more than one kind of music, which is still unusual. Mm -hmm. And I realized that among the more interesting things happening besides Dangdut, which is a very important popular style there, there was a lot of metal, hardcore, punk, uh, alternative stuff going on as well. Uh, and that became really important after the uh, political transition when uh, Suharto was um, overthrown in 1998 because a lot of those kids were metalheads and punk kids. And so all of a sudden there was an audience, really a readership for studies of underground music uh, from uh, this part of the world that had been there before. And so I realized that there was actually a, a market <laughs> and an audience for this part of my research, which I, which I thought I was pursuing out of pure interest. Um, my dissertation research actually included many other styles of music as well. What inspired you to move into then gathering other academics together to put uh, a whole collection on metal around the globe? You know, it seemed kind of like a no-brainer to me at the time. Uh, there were all these, uh, uh, I forget who coined the phrase, but sort of global roundups of music genres. Uh, we were hardly the first. Mm. Uh, there was uh, the late Lise Waxer's great uh, volume, Situating Salsa, which talks about salsa, not just in, not just in, uh, Puerto Rico and, and New York, but also its origins in Cuba, um, uh, salsa in London, salsa in Colombia and Venezuela, uh, which were her Hertzfield sites, uh, salsa um, in various places all over the world. It was really, you know, a global perspective on salsa. There was a book about global country. It was never published, but I read an early draft of the introduction. <laughs> Uh, it was supposed to come out in 1998. It has not come out yet, but it was a sort of a global country volume. There's a book on global reggae. There was a book in 2001, I think mean, a long time ago at this point, called Global Noise, Rap and Hip Hop Outside mm -hmm. the USA by Tony Mitchell. Um, you're a linguist, you probably know it. In the 90s, I mean, the global dimensions of hip hop are well um, documented by scholars. Uh, people rapping in Maori, for example, that was one of Tony Mitchell's things, um, the guy who edited that collection. So this was already something that was going on uh, in, in scholarship 
And it seemed like it was metal's turn because this was clearly a genre with a great deal of global purchase. And uh, had global uh, dimensions beyond what most people were aware of, that this was music that had really caught on in parts of the world where you don't think of people being metalheads. Um, places like um, Indonesia and Japan and uh, Nepal. Um, and there were growing scenes in China, India, um, and huge scenes well-established in practically every Latin American country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, outside the English-speaking world, outside of the Western world, there were very large metal scenes and no one had written about them. So that's sort of where this book came in. And it, it seemed like a pretty reasonable thing to write about. I really never thought um, it was an unusual project at all. There were a lot of uh, people I knew, ethnomusicologists who did work like Paul Green um, in metal scenes in other parts of the world. Um, Paul Green's work in Kathmandu or Cynthia Wong's work in Beijing. Uh, and uh, it seemed like it was an idea that uh, had potential. So that's very interesting. How did you uh, find all these collaborators? You said you knew some of them, but was it hard to go out and get enough people to get a full collection together? You know, it, was, it wasn't that hard at all. Uh, I think we now know how hard it can be to get authors together. Although, actually, we're working on something right now. Uh, it's a, a book about heavy metal in the global south, trying to take a more kind of conceptually ambitious uh, approach to the issue and, and focusing on, on heavy metal from uh, non-Western uh, post-colonial contexts. Uh, and actually, I found that when metal is concerned, you don't need to ask very much. Um, you get people volunteering that you don't know, that, you know, come out of the woodwork. And that was our experience actually with Metal Wolves of the Globe. We're, we were very proud, we were very proud to, to say that most of the people we worked with were from the countries that they wrote about and they contacted us. We sent out a call and they contacted us. Uh, you know, uh, we even actually didn't ex- end up accepting some of the some of the uh, abstracts we got. Uh, so you know, getting getting um, contributors was not a problem, and also everyone gave us stuff on time. I mean, we had, <laughs> it was my first edited volume, and I had no idea how easy it was because you know later uh, edited projects that 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 I've done um, did not go smoothly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it's it took a you know it took over ten years to do, but uh, everyone uh, was very patient and, and they did a good job, and certainly held up their end. Nice. So, although certainly there's a lot of research being done on heavy metal across time, um, we were wondering what's your opinion on why there's still a kind of general paucity of research um, on global metal. Well, I don't know if there is anymore, honestly. Uh, a lot of it is in uh, non-English languages. Mm. Uh, I think the uh, the emergence of metal studies about 23 years ago has 
opened the floodgates in a lot of places uh, and has sort of green lit uh, the possibility of writing uh, in a serious scholarly way about heavy metal in uh, Spanish speaking contexts, in Indonesian and Malay speaking contexts. Uh, I have been cited in Polish, Czech, uh, uh, Indonesian, Malay, uh, Spanish, uh, French, uh, German uh, texts. Um, very few of them I can read much of, but I can read my name and the computer tells me about them. You know, it's, that's the reality we live in now is I actually get little, you know, notes every time the computer finds something with my name in it um, or things that thinks my name is in, you know, I have nothing to do with, you know, irradiated lab mice, but you know, some, somebody with my last name does. Uh, and it seems like there is uh, a new kind of efflorescence of metal research that's done in other languages and presumably about um, metal bands that are from other countries. So, there is a, a larger amount of global metal research than there was. Uh, I think there will continue to be. Uh, I, I always um, hope that, I am hopeful and, and optimistic that, that metal culture will, will persevere, that at the very least it will, it will persevere in the sense that that places that are not yet metalized, to use uh, Paul Green's term, um, will will become so. Um, newly industrializing uh, uh, regions will uh, discover heavy metal, and heavy metal, I think, has a cross-cultural appeal. I think people who hear it, who are predisposed toward it, will want more of it, and you can't keep them away once they hear it. And that is one of those cross-cultural pan-human things. Doesn't apply to most people, but it does to some people. And I think it does everywhere. And that means that places where the social and material and political conditions um, don't yet um, uh, exist for metal, when economic conditions change and those conditions change and those conditions do uh, suddenly um, allow for the uh, emergence of metal and the exposure to heavy metal music. When those affordances are there, I think uh, new scenes will continue to sprout up around the world. Uh, there was an article on, in Metal Music Studies a few, I think about maybe a year and a half ago about heavy metal in Kenya. Mm. Um, pretty much before 2010, there, were, there was almost no metal in Africa, but it's a, now a growth area, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and that's because Africa is industrializing and mm -hmm. pretty much any place that has McDonald's has a metal scene and really any place that has you know, industrial infrastructure has a metal scene, and that is becoming more and more places. 
That's really interesting. Actually, it links into um, uh, one thing that we we're, our next question was actually going to ask you some questions that you asked in your book. Um, you started your book by uh, listing some questions at the end of your introduction. And one of them was, will metal scenes eventually be found in every place where economic relations are ruled by capitalism? And I think you kind of yeah. answered that one a bit right now. Uh, but the second question you asked uh, is, will other new genres arise in formerly peripheral areas and attract a global consistency? How do you think, is there an answer to that question yet? Um, yes, um, in fact, uh, yeah, there, you know, a lot of those questions have been answered. It's been 10 years, as you've said. And yeah, the answer to that is yes, again, um, uh, we may not like the new genres that have emerged, but they have emerged and they have influenced global metal. That is the fourth stage of the um, adoption of a new musical genre is when the music on the periphery starts to influence the center. And it's a fairly recent development. I can give you a few names. Baby metal from Japan mm -hmm. really is a kind of folk metal. Um, if the folk music of Japan is J-pop idol music. And in a way it is. If you notice, they sing in Japanese for the most part. They mm -hmm. are you know, pretty much a folk metal ensemble. They sing in, in their national language and they are performing in indigenous music in a sense. Uh, and in fact, they really do incorporate Japanese music once in a while. Uh, so baby metal is one example, perhaps a fraught one. A less uh, contentious example would be the Who Band uh, from Mongolia. Mm -hmm. uh, another one would be uh, uh, Alien Weaponry from mm -hmm. New Zealand. Uh, uh, there are actually several, right? Um, Sepultura's Roots album one could say would be one of the first and certainly very influential um, when Sepultura started incorporating uh, Brazilian musics. Uh, I mean, that already existed when we did Metal Rules of Globe, and that turned out to be a harbinger of, of sorts. Uh, there are, but there are a number of bands, you know, quite recently that have influenced the center from the periphery. You also could include all these folk metal bands from uh, Finland, uh, from, uh, from Sweden, from Norway, uh, uh, a band like uh, Kvelertak, who sings in Norwegian. Uh, you know, um, even Amorphous, who sings about the Kalevala and has some folk elements in their music. I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but Certainly, there are lots of examples of bands from the non-English speaking periphery of metal coming to influence uh, world metal and coming to influence the international scene and have gotten coverage in uh, Western media outlets. And of course, I have to mention Voice of Bachaprod, which is a group from Indonesia uh, the three uh, teenage um, women who wear the hijab, who uh, play a kind of Rage Against the Machine, Red Hot Chili Peppers influenced kind of funk metal. Mm. Uh, they uh, have received a great deal of media coverage. First, uh, uh, outlets like the New York Times and NPR, and now they uh, um, have appeared more and more in the uh, metal press. I don't think... Um, you can discount them either. They're great musicians. Uh, so the bands from the periphery are influencing the center. 
that was less the case in 2011, but it, it's definitely the case now. Um, so another question that you posed was how will multinational um, corporations in the future attempt to profit from and exploit metal music? That's a very good question. Uh, it's yours. <laughs> yeah, your question. <laughs> and uh, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I, I would like to know. I, I have a feeling um, they're doing more to exploit metal music in markets besides the United States, right? Because metal doesn't sell this country. Uh, you know, it really ha hasn't for a very long time. It is far more commercially viable practically everywhere else. And I imagine in, in other places, it's more often used to sell products. So uh, I, I would be curious, you know, how commercial culture is appropriated metal in, say, Brazil or, uh, or Honduras or El Salvador. Uh, I don't really know, though. Um, I didn't see a whole lot in Indonesia and Malaysia uh, or Singapore, maybe because uh, metal is still somewhat disreputable there, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me either. The fourth question you asked was, uh, can metal hold onto its audience in places where it originated? That's an interesting question too, that I think um, we have more data on than we did then. Uh, Metal has been surprisingly durable. Uh, it has held on to its audience, even though we're all getting up there, right? We're all getting pretty old. And yet people are still listening to metal. That's one reason why uh, it's the number one genre, you know, according to a lot of streaming platforms. And of course, when you take the US out of the equation, the number goes up. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, a, a big part of that is a lot of us are still listening to it, even though, you know, we're eligible for AARP, some of us. Um, <laughs> some of us are in our 70s, not me. Uh, so I think, you know, heavy metal in the rich world has held on to its audience. It seems like in the, in the developing world, it has as well. Uh, I think the evidence for that is more anecdotal. But people grow up with these bands and they don't seem to want to let them go. I don't think people have let go of the music of their youth for a pretty long time. Uh, it's just that they stopped buying new acts. And the interesting, thing, you know, the interesting thing about metal is, at least the folks we know, they still buy the new acts too. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, the loyalty to the, to the genre means you kind of keep up with the newer bands too. Uh, and that's unusual, you know, people who like the classic rock bands of their youth generally don't buy Greta Van Fleet or, you know, the newer uh, classic rock bands mm -hmm. necessarily. But I find if you're, you know, even if you're 50, you follow metal and you are interested in new groups. That's more anecdotal though. I would say though, in general, people who still like the music are interested in, in the new bands uh, in, in, in metal culture. Right. And the final question that we had kind of in relation to your book itself uh, isn't one that you asked in the introduction, but it's one you kind of propose as a, a general theme. And you actually, you touched on this, that uh, bands, uh, researchers in languages other than English are, are publishing quite extensively. But do you think that your call in the book for a more global perspective on metal in research has been answered in the English language research scene? Oh, if I thought that it was, I probably wouldn't be writing this other book, <laughs> co-editing it. I'm not the first. Editor. 
uh, I would say this, uh, heavy metal has studies has been more open to global approaches than, and multilinguistic approaches than popular music studies in general, which has been uh, fairly ethnocentric. Uh, so much so that uh, people have compared it to musicology, right? The uh, traditional music history that focuses on classical composers uh, to the exclusion of all other music. Uh, so it's still pretty much focused on Bruce Springsteen and the Velvet Underground and the Sex Pistols. And you don't ever read about, um, you know, Italian or or French or, or um, Bolivian uh, singer songwriters or things like that. It, that is less common, uh, much less Burmese or, or Bangladeshi uh, uh, rock bands or things like that. Uh, it's, a, it's a more global field than any other kind of popular music study right now, except for maybe punk. Punk is becoming more globally aware an interesting development um, that started um, about five years ago, especially. And so I, I think that's a good thing, but I think that that global metal is still uh, marginal. I think it, it's, it's still um, not the default setting. Uh, you still have a, a core who are just interested in you know, the, the mainstream tradition, uh, starting with Black Sabbath and continuing on with Metallica and uh, going to the current bands uh, and sort of arguing about that canon. That's still, I think, the, the conventional route. So it's a little bit off the beaten path still. Uh, I think if it wasn't for metal rules the globe, I think uh, different repertoires would be even more marginalized. But nowadays, even jazz, which was a holdout for a while, even though there was also a global jazz roundup book called Jazz Planet that came out in 2003. So in a way they were ahead of us, but really it's only until, until recently that jazz studies has been relatively open to global perspectives. Jazz studies had always been very America-centric. Uh, their biggest fight was whether white Americans could play jazz, but it was always about white Americans versus black Americans. Non-Americans didn't even enter into the equation. Mm. And one of the places, I mean, one of the things I wrote about in my research was Indonesian jazz which is very, very sophisticated, extremely diverse and very serious. Uh, and, you know, you'd never read about that in a jazz textbook because it wasn't American, at least not until recently, right? Because now there's a pianist named Joy Alexander who's from Indonesia. He's sort of the Rich Brian of, of uh, jazz. He's a child prodigy. It's not a child anymore, I don't think. But, uh, you know, he didn't come out of nowhere. His biggest influence is a guy named Booby Chen. I get to meet him before he died. He died in 2012. Great jazz pianist. Uh, but one of, one of several um, really world-class players uh, 
from that country, you wouldn't read about them, you know, because jazz was always very America-centric. It was considered America's music. And one of the goals of Metal of the Globe was to get metal studies away from a very nationalist framing, especially um, the way it's talked about in England. It's really seen as distinctly um, British music. And while uh, most metal scholars agree that Black Sabbath really um, set the template, you know, to say it's British music, obviously elides a great deal and is very deceptive with regard to its global purchase. Mm. Um, not just its origins, but its destinations. That's interesting. I, I never heard it linked to, I've, I've heard it be very Eurocentric in descriptions. I never heard anyone limit it to England. That seems to cut off an extremely large number of fans from the, uh, the, from the discussion. Well, particularly Scandinavia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, Scandinavia kind of changed the equation, right? But before the early 90s, I mean, even though you had Scorpion, Scorpions and, and Merciful Fate and uh, Celtic Frost, even though you had bands like that, no one really thought about the non-English speaking world or continental, continental Europe really uh, until the Norwegians, until the Norwegian black metal scene uh, in the English speaking world. I mean, really it was only uh, the UK and the USA. Uh, and Sepultura. Of course. So you've done extensive research on the Singaporean, Malaysian and Indonesian metal scenes. And you noted that there's a local, um, like various local forms of identity and resistance as well as racial, gendered and social ideologies present throughout. Uh, for a Western metal fan, mm -hmm. what aspects of these scenes do you think might be most kind of surprising or different from what they're already familiar with in you know, Western metal scenes uh, that they frequent? Hmm. Well, one of the things that's strikingly different is the emphasis on uh, sociality, the emphasis on, uh, on, on sort of mutual solidarity. Uh, you hear a lot in Western contexts in Australia, uh, I imagine it's no different, about scene unity, right? About not betraying the scene, about- 100%, you know, yeah. Part. Yeah. You hear a lot about it, but you don't see a lot of it. People are mostly kind of selfish and bands tend to break up after a pretty short time because of internal rivalries and you know, people's own selfish ends. And, and because Indonesia has a very sort of general sociocentric orientation compared to, um, our countries, uh, they take scene unity much more seriously than we do. Um, so you have bands that have existed for 10, 20 years that still play and sometimes still have all their original members. And, you know, in, a, in an, an American context, the only way a band like that, you know, stays around is if they're successful and there's a lot of money to be made from staying together. Uh, and, in general, I mean, the, the kind of scenic unity you see uh, 
I've not seen uh, in American contexts. Hmm. An example is the heavy metal can-can line, as I called it, in uh, I think in uh, Modern Noise, a Fluid Genres, the book I wrote about Indonesia. Uh, it's a bunch of guys headbanging in unison um, with their arms around each other. So they, they look like a heavy metal can-can line. Um, I've, I've heard this described in other scenes um, in the Muslim world, but not uh, in America. I think mm. it would look strange. So that, that's one of the differences. A lot of it looks exactly the same and sounds exactly the same. Uh, you have to have a, a sense of subtlety and appreciation of subtle differences to understand the ways it, it doesn't conform because part of being metal is to look and sound metal the way you know the global standard is set. That's pretty much the same anywhere you look. It's the same in Sydney. It's the same in Philadelphia. You know, everyone is aspiring to that global standard, and they really have no less right to it than anyone else. Do you think that global standard is? changing though or is, is it a flexible standard or is it uh rather solid how is how uh resistant to change is is it do you think i i think it is relatively slow to change one thing i have found in studying um youth subcultures which the name is perhaps deceptive but studying uh metal and punk cross-culturally i found that the element of traditionalism uh, in both those subcultures is one thing that helps them uh, gain this global purchase and travel around the world. Um, punks in, in Yangon, in Burma, in Jakarta, in Bangkok, in Beijing, they all have the mohawks and the leather jackets and the combat boots. They wear the uniform, mm -hmm. not because they have to, because they want to. And that uniform has remained fairly unchanged since the early 80s, right? Since the time of the exploited, right? And that, that's a kind of solidity. You know, that's a kind of, you know, solid tradition that you can pledge allegiance to and, and form your allegiance through your dress and through your mannerisms. Likewise, you know, the black t-shirt in metal is a signifier of allegiance, right? It's a signifier of community. And it's very hard to imagine that falling out of fashion, right? Falling, falling out of favor, considering how important that is to the subculture. Mm. And it's a, it's a, a badge of affiliation, one that's very old, one that you know is re instantly recognizable, and has not changed in forty years, really. What would you say oh. are some of the kind of key changes um, you've observed in the global scene over the last ten or so years? Well, um, I think new styles have come in. Certainly, the the internet has had an effect. Um, both good and bad. Uh, Keith Con Harris talks about the crisis of abundance. He, you know, is critical of the fact that all these hard-to-find artifacts, um, both sonic and and visual, uh, are now easily accessible, right, on YouTube or on online. Uh, and 
bemoans their ubiquity. Uh, I uh, have a different perspective. I think that if it wasn't for the internet, there wouldn't be a metal scene in Saudi Arabia, for example. Mm. Uh, it really makes metal much more accessible um, to places that are still pretty tamped down in terms of the kinds of things that can circulate through their spaces. Uh, so the internet has certainly made metal much more uh, prevalent in places where it had not been previously. Uh, internet is essential to heavy metal activity in Africa by all accounts, for example. You have to have the internet. Um, metal is a globe, which really we're talking about stuff from really the late 90s to the early thousands there. It's, you know, there's a time lag with all scholarship. Uh, mm. So the rise of the internet is obviously a, a now boring, but uh, <laughs> uh, important uh, story there. Um, I've had an impact on metal culture. Uh, the the uh, ubiquity of folk metal bands and the ability of the best to influence the global scene, that is a new thing. Development is the discovery of developing countries as a market. Uh, mm -hmm. More uh, internationally famous bands have started touring uh, in places like Southeast Asia. Uh, really, it's a 21st century development. Uh, Iron Maiden uh, went to Indonesia for the first time in 2011. Uh, uh, they went to Bali, uh, Singapore, and Jakarta. Uh, and Anthrax, I think, around, was also there around the same time. Uh, I think Arch Enemy was there the first time, I think in 2009. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that, that was a fairly new development. Um, this discovery of these places as a market for metal. Uh, you know, when, when bands would play these huge festivals, they'd have 20,000 or more spectators. Uh, and these are metal bands that if they play the States would be lucky to get 200 people. Mm -hmm. So th these, uh, these places had a draw for them. I mean, even you know, bands that couldn't fill up a club in Sydney, if they play in Kuala Lumpur, could get 1,000 people. Mm. And that's what uh, Rowan Cox's movie is about. And again, that's called The Other Option. I think there's still a website where you can get that movie. Uh, it talks about, I mean, it came out, I think, 2015. It, he talks about a lot of bands that have decided to just, you know, pull up stakes and go and, and tour there for a little while, mm -hmm. go all across the region. Uh, but that is a fairly new development. Uh, even though you know it started as a trickle in the 90s, it really picked up around uh, around 2010. What about uh, the role of English itself? Uh, in your chapter on Metal Rules the Globe, you mentioned that the bands you're looking at sing in both English and their local variants. Since that time, over the mm -hmm. you know 10 plus years, have you seen the role of English changing? And what factors do you think might uh, yes be encouraging this change or encouraging the lack of a change? The role of English is actually complex because uh, originally uh, when underground scenes uh, developed in a lot of places, not just in Asia, not just uh, Singapore or, uh, or uh, Malaysia, bands wanted to sing in English. 
right? Mm -hmm. Because that was the language of these bands that influenced them. Even folks that didn't speak English wanted to sing in English. Uh, and a lot of times in the early days, people didn't speak English at all. They liked songs in English, but they didn't really know the language. They would learn the, the words phonetically. The same way, you know, people still sing Indian film songs or Latin songs. Um, they don't know Hindi or Spanish, but they know the words. Uh, so um, if they got a following and started performing original songs, sometimes national record labels would say, well, if you want to get a record deal with us, you got to sing in our language or we're not going to be able to sell you, right? We've got to sell your records. So if we're in Japan, you got to sing in Japanese. So for commercial reasons, they had to move away from English. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, they would say, well, yeah, but then no one from outside Japan or wherever they were will listen to us. And their labels would say, well, <laughs> you have no chance in the international market anyway we don't care we want to make money in the domestic market and that if you want if you're going to do that then you got to sing in our own language and then they would and they'd figure out a way to do it what's happened more recently is discovery that you don't sing in english to bring into the international market in fact, it's better if you don't. Everyone who's tried to sing in English to break into the international market from a non-English speaking country has faltered. The people who have succeeded have been singing in their own language. So you have baby metal, you have BTS, right? You have all these K-pop groups they're not singing in English. They're actually singing in Korean, but they're breaking through to this country, mm -hmm. right? And we're the biggest music market in the world, in America. And I think that's you know, had significant repercussions for world, world metal as well. I mean, people love alien weaponry because they sing in Mallory. And that's, that's had considerable repercussions. You even have a band like uh, Arandu Arakwa they have songs in Tupi with Portuguese subtitles, but they'd rather have subtitles than sing in English, right? You have even a band like, yeah, Heidevolk. I mean, they, they don't sing in English. They sing in, uh, they sing in like, I don't even know what the language is called, but it's, it's, a, it's a Dutch dialect. You know, and there's also, I mean, there's another folk metal band that's uh, part of the medieval metal band uh, movement. Uh, in Germany, um, uh, in Extremo, they sing in Latin and I think Church Slavonic. They sing in Hebrew. They sing in German. They sing in pretty much every language but English. You know, it's, <laughs> it, and it's sort of their thing, along with playing these medieval instruments like bagpipes. But this is relatively new, I suppose. You know, as as far as metal goes, it's a it's a recent development that we only touch on in the book. We, we mentioned some of these things, um, like we mentioned Orphan Land, right? The band from Israel that combines uh, Arab instruments um, with metal and sings in Arabic, Hebrew, and English. Uh, 
but we don't, you know, delve into it because if they had they hadn't gotten so big yet. So do you think that the Asian metal bands and local scenes you discuss in Metal Rules the Globe are impacting the Western scene on like a larger scale? So obviously you said that they've started to break into the Western scene despite, yeah. you know, speaking in non-English languages. Um, but I suppose, right. yeah, in a broader sense, we do see them kind of impacting the global scene, um, you know, adjusting its trajectory of development? Well, I, I have yet to see any band from um, New Jersey say, well, we were really into an influenced by Thonic and Orphanland, and uh, we want to sound just like Amorphous. I, I suspect that's down the road. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. certainly people are listening to those bands. I have seen Indonesian bands that are clearly very Thonic influenced just as I've seen Indonesian metal bands that are clearly very baby metal influenced. Mm. I think it's inevitable that the next generation of bands from Australia, from, from Canada, from New Zealand, from America will be influenced by all these global uh, groups because, because they're listening to them. It hasn't happened yet because this is all new, but you know, in 15 years, I think it's inevitable that that'll be the next wave. But it'll be interesting because it hasn't happened yet. Right now you're starting to see a little bit of occasional groups influenced by non-Western rock music, but nothing yet uh, that, that we're gonna get. I mean, there'll be bands influenced by Nine Treasures or influenced by Mongolian metal. You know, that's, that's all I think coming down the pike. So very soon you think? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think it won't be too long. I guess then just finally, um, ultimately, what would you say based on your years of experience in the scene is the uh, main things that we can learn from studying the global metal scene? Like if you were to talk to somebody who knew nothing about metal and maybe nothing about media studies and they said, you know, what's the point of researching metal? Uh, what do you think is the value? Mm -hmm. what, what are the fundamental things we can learn from investigating um, not just metal, but specifically uh, metal as a global phenomenon? Well, um... First, I want to say this is an important question. You know, I, I, uh, I shouldn't make predictions, but I guess I already made one. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I would say this is an important question. I think that the role of metal scholars should play is uh, of convincing non-fans of the importance of this work, of this research. Uh, we can do better than preach to the choir. Uh, and what I would say is that this is a cultural forum that has proven more compelling than most, often thought to be insurmountable of culture, of history, of religion, of, of region, of race, of class. It has really just slashed through those boundaries to, um, to paraphrase uh, an article paraphrasing Metallica, right? Uh, and it's fascinating to speculate the reasons why. And one of the inevitable reasons that you come across if you ask people is it's great music. Well, if the humanities is all about studying great art, then one of the things that we should be looking at is what makes this music great. In a larger sense, uh, this is a consequential, uh, a sociological and political phenomenon. Um, 
the the expansion of underground uh, rock music has uh, radicalized uh, large masses of young people. It has led to the destabilization of governments, uh, the uh, fall of the uh, Soviet bloc, the fall of the Iron Curtain, uh, the democratic transition in Indonesia, uh, the uh, Arab Spring, uh, various kinds of social uh, revolutions and unrest um, have been connected to the, uh, the Tunisian Revolution. Um, they have been connected to uh, developments in youth music, uh, uh, almost inevitably. Uh, if you look at just about anything that's happened in politics in the last um, 50 years, there's been some sort of connection with, uh, with rock music and uh, often um, either metal or punk or, or hip hop. So this is connected to that, right? The, to the political consequentiality of these underground um, channels by which a lot of metal travels and Metal is also a gateway. <clears throat> uh, a lot of people would say that metal is not the most politically um, volatile of genres, but really that's how the politically volatile genres get there, right? That's how anarchist punk, that's how feminist hardcore, you know, they wouldn't get anywhere if it wasn't for metal. Metal opens the door because people hear that first for the most part. And, and so there are a number of reasons and I wish I was better answering that question because that's one I think is important and one that I get asked. Uh, I wish I was asked that more <laughs> to, be, to be honest. And then maybe I would have a more polished answer. That's great though. I think that's already, um, yeah, answered it well enough, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think that's um, all the kind of questions that you had to ask. I know that we're on a time limit as well, so I don't want to monopolize too much of your um, night. But um, yeah, thanks a lot for um, participating in this interview with us. It's really interesting for us to hear about your research, um, particularly as you know we've only kind of started doing um, linguistic research in this area relatively recently over the last couple of years. So um, uh -huh. yes, it's really useful discussions for us and hopefully very much of interest to listeners as well who aren't really familiar necessarily with the academic approaches to extreme metal and heavy metal around the world. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and this fascinating kind of history of, of what's happened in the scene so far. Thank you. Um, can I add one more thing? If you mm -hmm. don't mind? Of course. Absolutely. Um, I've thought more recently, I mean, we had a certain kind of materialist um, anthropology in mind when we did uh, Metals the Globe, and we definitely thought about the relationships between capitalism and, and heavy metal. Mm -hmm. I, I, I stand by those, those arguments, but the recent vogue of heavy metal and indigenous languages, which seems to be a sort of growth area, uh, using it as a vehicle, not just alien weaponry, but um, bands like Arandu, Araqua, um, uh, the whole indigenous metal movement. I mean, mm -hmm. now it's even recognized by mainstream um, metal outlets as, as a thing, right? These are not necessarily communities where capitalism is the law of the land. 
they're in larger societies ruled by capitalism. But it's gotten me to question somewhat, you know, the necessary connection between a capitalist and the dominance of this music, right? Because if heavy metal becomes a viable uh, vehicle for the preservation of indigenous languages, then maybe its connection to a certain um, economic system, you know, were overstated. Mm. Maybe it has a role in indigenous community. There's certainly, um, I had a graduate student, uh, uh, Tony Thibodeau, who wrote about indigenous uh, metal in the United States. There's something else there. Um, the fact that this is music for warriors, the fact that this is music that is strong, it seems to go beyond just um, factories, right? And, and cities, right? It seems to have resonance mm. even in, in less capitalist and less urbanized environs. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, there's been, it is interesting to think about as a way of uh, like maintaining and, and supporting languages and ideas that, you know, might have fade away. I, I've been recently looking at the Japanese scene and there's some bands that try to like, uh, you know, maintain older forms of language that are theoretically dead. But I guess when you take them onto a, uh -huh. a, a dark nightclub and are now very much alive, right? In, in producing this kind of Mm -hmm. their, their take on Japanese metal or even their way to engage with and like yeah. talk up the beauty of what they, what they consider to be beautiful Japanese, which is of course Japanese that most people um, don't understand. I even had one where the lyricist was getting yelled at by their band because uh, the lyrics yeah. were too hard to <laughs> understand because they were so, they were using so many old forms. Uh, but you know, even on that small scale, because Japanese huh. is not is, is you know, very capitalist and, and not not even remotely a, a dying language, but forms of active languages, mm. I think, maybe are even being revived in surprising mm. ways. That's great. I didn't know that. That makes sense. I mean, it, it's worth comparing that to a band like uh, Black Huron and their use of uh, medieval Chinese. Right? They they use a lot of poetic Chinese, which I you know, I know is extremely hard to translate. And mm -hmm. whenever I look at their YouTube video, people in the comments say, so what are they saying? And then the Chinese speakers say, yeah, I don't understand what they're saying because this is the Chinese that we don't understand. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, there's some, there, I think some parallels there. Mm. You know, it's poetry. You know, you spend your whole career trying to translate one line. <laughs> I mean, Chinese poetry is like that. Yeah, I've got a full album to translate. Yeah. Well, is there any, um, what, what, I guess in, in closing, um, are there projects you have coming up that are in this scene? Have you, has your research directory kind of moved in new directions or, or you said you're working on a, a book that should be coming out soonish? I am co-editing this with, uh, with uh, my wife, Dr. Esther Clinton and uh, Nelson Varas Diaz, who has written extensively about the Puerto Rican scene and has written about uh, the metal scenes in Latin America and has made four films about Latin American metal scenes. Uh, pretty active guy. Uh, also, um, uh, Daniel Narvaz, is that his name? Oh. Neves, I think. Neves, yeah, sorry. Sorry, Daniel. Um, <laughs> Uh, we're working on a uh, edited collection on metal in the global south. We're going to be, I mean, it's still in the beginning stages, but we're excited about it. It's got a few interviews and it's got uh, uh, papers about places that we didn't get to write about. Uh, 
in the middle of the globe or places um, that we did get to write about, but these are new topics and new uh, approaches by new scholars. Mm. Um, so there's going to be a chapter by an Indonesian about uh, Indonesia, actually two chapters about Indonesia by Indonesians, um, one chapter about Malaysia by two Malaysians, uh, a chapter about Argentina, which we didn't talk about before, um, a chapter about, uh, about Saudi Arabia, hopefully, uh, a chapter uh, about um, Tunisia? Tunisia, yeah, and a chapter about Morocco, oh, wow. and a chapter about um, all of Sub-Saharan Africa, so it, it should be it should be good, uh, and it's not really supposed to be a sequel, but it's it's going to be hopefully something useful and different. Does it have a title yet? Defiant sounds. Very cool. Metal <laughs> uh, cool. in the global south, something like that. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. We'll look out for it. I suppose we can um, keep up with the progress on your website. Yeah, JeremyWallach.com. Yeah, just J E R E M Y W A L L A C H. Awesome. We'll leave a link in our episode description as well. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for this. This was fascinating. Um, yeah. Please keep in touch. I shall. Thank you. Well, have a good day. Yeah, you too. Have a nice evening. Still day there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> Thank you. it's one o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good night. Good night. Take care. Thank you for listening to Lingua Italica. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you stay tuned for our next episode. Before we leave, we just wanted to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Mm-hmm.